Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. This is Solvable. I'm Ronald Young Jr. Is it really fair to compare, you know, Twinkies and Oreo cookies with cigarettes and alcohol and, and even some drugs? Food is delicious, nutritious, and sometimes controversial. Whether it's less red meat, more vegetables, or dairy alternatives, dietitians, nutritionists, doctors, trainers, chefs, and foodies all have an opinion on what we should and should not be putting into our bodies. At times, it can feel difficult to know what is the right decision when it comes to our eating habits. It's not our fault. This is not on us. These products are engineered in a way that's designed to get us to lose control. We live in an age where what we're consuming has changed beyond the necessity of survival. And in most ways, those changes are intentional. We've grown up to see these food products as being full of cartoon characters and joy and happiness. So, I mean, can you imagine there being like a march through the streets of Brooklyn protesting Oreo cookies? Michael Moss is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist and New York Times bestselling author. Our over-dependence on processed food, which has this incredible hidden cost, can be solved by our reclaiming food for ourselves. 
I'm excited to talk to you because we're coming to a place where people are trying to lose the quarantine 15 after, you know, kind of eating whatever over the uh, lockdown months. And people's relationship with food right now is probably at a very pivotal moment. So one thing as someone who like I, I've struggled both with weight, probably most of my adult life and my relationship with food. And I also struggled with the idea of food addiction as it feels impossible to be addicted to something that your body needs. And you talk about this in your book, Hook. Yes. So being addicted to food was a really good thing for mm -hmm. most of our existence, our forebears. Putting on body fat was a really good thing because it enabled our brains to grow and enabled us to get through hard times and have more offspring, which is mm -hmm. kind of what life is all about, right? But the problem is the nature of our food was changed so dramatically by the food companies in the last 50 years that suddenly what was really good for us became really problematic. How would you define addiction and why food can be addictive despite us having to eat to live? I spent time with evolutionary biologists for this book because I was really kind of trying to figure out is, is addiction really kind of the right word? And is it really fair to compare, you know, Twinkies and Oreo cookies with cigarettes and alcohol and, and even some drugs? And so spending time, though, with these biologists, I came full circle. And now I'm convinced that in many ways, these food products are even more problematic. There is some precedence to the food industry called the tobacco industry. And for decades, it vehemently denied that smoking was addictive, right? It put all its scientists who work on that and it's, it's, it's lobbyists and it's top CEO officials and et cetera. Well, in 2000, something really fascinating happened, which is that Philip Morris completely flipped around and said, okay, you got us. Smoking is in fact addictive. We're throwing in the towel on that. What was so interesting about that for me is that Philip Morris at the time was also the single largest manufacturer of processed food through its purchase of the old company General Foods and then Kraft and then Nabisco, which made Oreo cookies. And that same year, the CEO of the company was asked to define addiction in some legal proceedings. And he says, well, addiction is a repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit. And I thought that was so perfect, A, because it's in line with what scientists and experts think of as addiction these days. But I also love the word some there because addiction happens on a spectrum. So it can affect us differently as people. It can affect us different times of our lives, different times of the day. So I thought that definition by Philip Morris, arguably one of the biggest experts on addiction in the world, was totally apt. And so I used that throughout the, out the book in, in terms of talking about addiction and looking at these products and what these companies do to maximize the seductive power of their product. Why is it that our brains and bodies are wired to crave certain foods if those foods aren't helpful to us? That's kind of one of the biggest mysteries still out there. I mean, there's some thought the brain looks at sugar as calories for young growing bodies. And, you know, when we were living on the plains and hunter-gatherer societies, sugar was kind of a rare thing. And so you can kind of see how we might have gotten attracted to mm -hmm. that sugar and how 
it, it it thus excites the brain in a way that maybe even fats and salt and protein certainly doesn't do. One of the powerful aspects of these products is memory. We begin developing memories for foods at a really young age, possibly even in the womb. Um, and that's why the soda for companies, for example, know that if they can get a soda in the hands of a kid, when he or she is with their parents at a ball game, that will forevermore be associated with that joyous moment. And when they're older in life and they want some joy and comfort in their life, what do they turn to? Soda, because it's there kind of in their memory. And that's where the companies also spend so much money on advertising and marketing. So part of what attracts us to food and it creates our eating habits is in fact the habit, repetitive behavior of eating these products again and again deepens those memory channels in, in our brain. When you're talking about food memories, can you give me an earliest memory of food for you? I grew up in California, Fresno for my early teens in the Central Valley. I was a latchkey kid. My mom worked outside of the house, as did my dad. I would come home, let myself in the house, and put a Pop-Tart in the toaster oven. This was after school, uh, elementary school. Mm -hmm. right? That's kind of one of my earliest food memories. A few years ago, I went to the Kellogg's research and development facility. Way off in the distance in the factory, they had messed up a batch of Pop-Tarts and they were dumping this huge amount of raw dough into a dumpster. Um, and the aroma came wafting across the factory floor and instantly took me back wow. to those days well, yeah. because our power of smell is incredible. That's another big factor in these products and our love for food, but also just the memory. Those Pop-Tarts had never left my brain. Mm -hmm. They were still in there after all that time. So I, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about weight. It's rare to have a conversation about food, food addiction, our relationships with food, and not have it veer into talking about weight. One of the things that I appreciated about your book is that you note that weight is not the only barometer for food-related trouble in health. What are some of the other ones? So, yeah, you can't just look at somebody and say, because they're, they're overweight. And in fact, there's even some science that's saying a little bit of overweight may be actually a really good thing for mm -hmm. us in terms of longevity and what have you. So, so yeah, I think obesity is this really crude measure of health. But I have to tell you, one of the things I was just so struck by in, in, in kind of the reporting that I did for, for, for this book was how body fat is an organ, you know, a thinking, plotting, diabolical organ that's doing everything it can to resist your efforts to cut back on it. So that um, if you go on a weight loss diet, your own body fat will be sending a signal to the brain telling it, you're hungry, eat. Um, it will also slow down your metabolism, your resting metabolism, which is how much energy we burn, just like sitting around or sort of even sleeping. So you burn less energy and you're less of a threat to the fat. Um, and again, kind of evolutionarily, that kind of makes sense because gaining weight was a really good thing to do back in hunters, you know, gather societies when when extra weight was sort of our protection in a matter of life and uh, life and death. And so it makes sense we would have this resistance then to losing that weight as a, as a protective mechanism. When you talk about uh, fat being an organ, are you are you being metaphorical or do you? Oh do we no, know not, no, no, 
No, literally. So body fat, the cells of the body fat communicate with each other. They communicate with the rest of the body, just like other organs in the body. Do. Wow. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an entity unto itself. And it's really, really smart diabolically. So if you're trying to lose weight. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job. And we have to find out, who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? 
I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. What do you think is the best way to talk about our addiction to food and the problems that are happening with processed food and with the ways in which companies make this food without demonizing people who are overweight and have maybe have struggles or maybe some of those people who are overweight and are perfectly content with where they are? Yeah, I kind of worried about something else in using the word addiction, which is that we might cause people to feel hopeless. Mm. Um because the word addiction is kind of so strong, it sort of implies that this is something that's out of my control. And I absolutely don't think that. I'm a journalist and journalists are kind of, especially investigative journalists, right, are kind of focused on, you know, the problem and pointing <laughs> out the problem. And part of me still believes that knowing all the tricks that these companies use when we walk into the grocery store or to many restaurants is in itself empowering and can, you know, can help us regain control of our eating habits. But there are also, I think, some really clear solutions here that I've come across. Um, We, by nature, love convenience, right? We love food that's inexpensive, quote unquote, that, that, that costs the least amount of energy to get. Again, going back to hunter-gatherer societies, when that was a really, really good thing to do. So what did the food industry do back in the 60s when both women and men were working outside of the home and in increasing numbers? They came to us and said, we'll solve your food problem. We'll make dinner. Mm-hmm. We'll make it convenient for you to come home at seven or eight o'clock at night and put dinner on the table in 30 minutes. Of course, the hidden price of that is what we're now dealing with in terms of our health problems, right? But I think that now knowing that there there are ways that we can take back what the food industry took from us, even convenience. I mean, look, I have a spaghetti sauce recipe down now to 93 seconds. (laughs) I kid you not. Granted, if it simmers on the stove a little while, right? My family's like more apt to eat it. But the actual working part of it, opening up a can of plum tomatoes and adding whatever like dried basil or spices might be around. And maybe if I, you know, I have 10 seconds sauteing a little garlic and olive oil, that's 93 seconds. That is convenience to the max, but that's home cooking, yeah. which is a really powerful tool that we can use to change our eating habits and lessen our dependence on these, on these processed food products. One of the interesting parts of your book is that you talk about the stomach and you talk about the brain and you talk about how for the longest time we thought that our stomachs were the driving force of our appetites. And you talk about how that is part of the story, but not all of the story. Tell us more about the brain. One of the hallmarks of addictive substances 
is speed. Back in the 90s, scientists studying addiction realized the faster a substance hits the brain, the more apt the brain is to be seduced by that substance and act compulsively, impulsively by overeating or overconsuming, right? So typically smoking, for example, will fully engage the brain in 10 seconds. And alcohol and drugs are kind of be a little bit less than that. But it turns out there's nothing faster than kind of the essential ingredients in processed food and their ability to hit the reward center of the brains, get us excited and get us to act impulsively. There was this exquisite study done a few years ago where they sat people down and said, we want you to tell us how fast you taste sugar. So they put a little sugar in their tongue. And those people were pushing the button, indicating that they were tasting sweet in less than one second. And that was really illuminating to me because Kind of what these processed food products are all about is speed from the manufacturing process to reduce the cost, from the packaging that lets us open the package and get to the product really fast, to the speed with which these products, which are heavily based on salt, sugar, and fats, which also reach the brain really fast, all about speed, all about getting us to act impulsively and mindlessly, which is another kind of characteristic of these processed food products, is that by not thinking about them, we put ourselves, we turn ourselves over, we turn our willpower over to the companies making these making these products. So I don't think we've talked specifically about how the companies are actually doing this, whether it be the speed, whether it be nurturing our addiction, if you will, nurturing our dependency on food, exploiting our dependency on food. How are the companies actually doing this? One of our natural attractions to food is cheapness, as I mentioned, right? We love a box of Pop-Tarts that costs 10 cents this week, less than it did last week, that gets us excited. We're much more apt to sort of put that in the shopping cart. Okay, so the food companies have working for them chemical laboratories called flavor houses. They're actually located in mostly in New Jersey, up and down the corridor, um, where they're kind of doing what you expect them to do. They're using chemicals, mixing and matching to imitate some of the natural flavorings in foods, which, which processed food companies then can use to make their products. They're famous for inventing pumpkin pie spice that's scourged, that spreads across the grocery store Ugh, every fall, the right? scourge of the and, planet. And all kinds of stuff from candy to cookies to who knows what, right? Well, they're using as many as 80 different chemical ingredients to create that, that pumpkin pie spice. But I spent some time with one of the flavor houses and they explained to me that their even bigger mission for the food companies is to constantly search for cheaper, less expensive combinations of these chemicals because they know, again, going back to my favorite, the Pop-Tarts, if they can knock 10 cents off the price of that box of Pop-Tarts, we're going to be excited by that. And they're going to win, you know, in that competitive marketplace called the, called the grocery store. They also have scientists, psychologists who working for the, working for them who understand that many of us eat for emotional reasons, not for true hunger pains, right? So they spend a lot of time finding ways to push those emotional buttons. With the pandemic, 
I remember one Twitter ad was for a couple of bags of chips that sort of advertised itself by, they were foot-long Doritos, as I recall. You had like two stick figures staying a safe six feet apart by measuring the distance with six bags of Doritos. So whether it's fear or comfort or childhood memories or happiness, the companies know through their psychological marketing expertise how to punch those buttons and get us to act. Let's talk about solutions. How do we how do we solve this? Like what are what are some steps we could take to actually fix these problems? Find any way you possibly can to to do as much cooking from scratch as you can. And I, and I think your listeners would be amazed at sort of how they can change your your attitude about about food. Um, there are just like so many people out there working on reinventing food, reinventing our food environment with our health in mind. Some of those people, by the way, have switched sides. Having former executives at these big food processed food companies are now working on behalf of farmers growing carrots and figuring out like what's an exciting way to market carrots to to kids. Um, And so it's kind of just like sitting back and going, well, how can we like reclaim what we used to have here and how hard would that be? I have a kitchen. I could cook my own food. I have a place to go to get fresh produce, to get vegetables. I'm not dealing with a food desert. Um, A lot of the convenience and the cheapness that comes with the processed foods is really affecting the people who have the least amount of resources. How can we help them? Oh, absolutely. So there are efforts underway, and this started in Philadelphia, working with corner stores to help them sell fresh produce, which is a lot harder than you might than it might sound because the coolers that they have are owned, you know, by the soda companies who don't want a bunch of broccoli in their coolers. So figuring out sort of how to do that. So I love, I love that aspect of it. If I was king for a day, I would put a garden in every school in this country, getting the kids excited about real food, getting their parents excited, but then making that real food available to those parents at a price that's affordable is going to mean rethinking the entire farm system because so much of the farm system, the vast majority of it, is about making soybeans and field corn cheaper and cheaper as ingredients for processed food. And if you could flip that around and help the agricultural system find ways to make broccoli less expensive and broccoli sweeter and more enticing and succulent to people and fresher, that's another essential thing that has to happen. How would they do that? The groundwork is already there. I wrote a story a few years ago for for the Times where I wrote about kids who'd left kind of the industrial soybean farm, went to the city, got dissolution, came back to the farm in the Midwest, but didn't want to continue that. And they started growing, you know, produce, vegetables, and fruits, and nuts. And one of the biggest things they needed was help with marketing because they didn't have the farmer's markets that they had they, that they have in Brooklyn and Portland and, and, and Seattle. Um, so helping with marketing. But basically, you need a Department of Agriculture that's oriented much more to our health and much less to industrial industrial farming. Is there an incentive for the Department of Agriculture to have us, 
you know, continue to to be unhealthy and to eat things that are not nutritious? Is there an incentive that stops them from actually putting solutions that like you're talking about, which all seem very simple into action? Yeah, I think it's just that, you know, the, the corporate farming business has lobbyists who are incredibly powerful. And agriculture is a powerful economic engine in the country. So I think it's just that that synergy that's happened between the farmers growing ingredients for processed food and and the officials at the Department of Agriculture working together on on, on that. And, and it's just, it's been really, really difficult to sort of affect some real meaningful change there. Are you optimistic about us being able to turn this around uh, to break this type of addiction on processed foods? Yeah, I'm, there's just you know so many people working on so many different solutions to to food and the food environment that I can't I can't help it but but not be optimistic. A lot of people write about food as critics, and obviously you have found the lane and you stay in it. What made you want to write about the food industry in this way? There had been an outbreak of salmonella in peanuts being manufactured in the southern United States. And I went down and took a look and it opened this incredible window on this on this processed food industry because many of these big companies were using these tainted peanuts as ingredients in their food products and they had lost control of the food chain. So weeks and weeks were going by, people were falling sick all over the country and they couldn't figure out if those peanuts were in their products or not. So that's kind of the first thing that got me really, really interested in this industry and and what it was doing to us. And then one of my best sources who tests meat for E. coli said to me, you know, Michael, as tragic as these, you know, incidents of of contamination are, you should really look at what my industry is intentionally adding to its products over which it has absolute control. He was worried about all the salt going into processed meat, but that led me to look at, at sugar and fats as well. And, and then more recently on the industry's ability to sort of use our own basic instincts against us. What would you recommend to our listeners to help solve this problem? So it kind of depends where you are on the spectrum of losing control to these food products. Obviously, if you're binge eating, you're going to be dealing with professional help because that's a really, really difficult thing to deal with. I mean, if you're somebody who gets like that 3 p.m. craving for a cookie, one of the lessons that that we've learned from the world of drug addiction is that that craving comes on so strong and wipes out your free will, your ability to sort of say no, that you pretty much have to find a way to get ahead of the craving. So whether your strategy is to get up and stretch or call a friend or try to eat something else that's healthier, like a handful of nuts, you pretty much need to be doing that at 2.55 in order to ward off that 3 p.m. craving. Our losing control, it's not our fault. This is not on us. These products are engineered in a way that's designed to get us to lose control over our willpower, over our ability to say no. So that's what they're engineered to do. Um, And knowing that, I think, is a really fundamental point here, figuring out how we as individuals, what strategies we can take um, to regain control. Do we need to take these companies to task? Because there's one thing with Philip Morris 
where we did. And that kind of resulted in kind of a shift in our attitudes towards smoking. At what point can we feel empowered to say, hey, you guys should stop doing this and help us? Yeah, no, that's so interesting you ask that because there was an attorney who used to work for one of the big food companies who came up with this idea of going after them the same way that we went after big tobacco. Because if you remember, the state attorneys general sued big tobacco, not because smoking was evil, but simply to recover the massive healthcare costs that they were incurring, treating people who were getting sick, cancer from smoking, right? So this attorney came up with the same idea. Why don't we go after big food and get them to pay for this hidden cost, hidden hit, huge hidden hit to to the state's healthcare uh, uh, budgets. And so he sent this exquisite proposal out to 17, I think it was state attorneys general, and he got not a single response. And, you know, I asked him what he thought the problem was. And he said, you know, I think a lot of these issues go in cycles and there's a moment. And tobacco in the 90s was just kind of a moment, especially when they started acknowledging that smoking was addictive. Food may not be in that moment right now. And so he was sort of a patient guy thinking, well, maybe in a few years we could try again. I think the other fundamental difference here, though, is that we've been led and we've grown up to see these food products as being full of cartoon characters and joy and happiness. So, I mean, Can you imagine there being like a march through the streets of Brooklyn protesting Oreo cookies? I can't. (laughs) And I think it's kind of for that reason that most of us still think when we walk into the grocery store, we're dealing with companies that are kind of fundamentally there to help improve our health. And until we kind of come to grips with the reality that that is not the case with many of these companies and so many of these products, then I think that we as a society, you know, aren't quite ready yet to cause the kind of, you know, the the kind of momentous change that can really cause this industry to, to turn around and change its ways. Well, thanks so much for being on our show. Thank you so much for your time. It's so fantastic. Michael Moss is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist and New York Times bestselling author. His most recent book is called Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. To learn more about the processed food industry, check out the links in our show notes. Next week on Solvable, I'm talking with fashion designer, influencer, and writer Gabby Gregg, also known as Gabby Fresh, about improving our relationship with our bodies. That is a great conversation. Definitely come back for that. Solvable is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Research by David Ja. Booking by Lisa Dunn. Our managing producer is Sasha Mathias, and our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. I'm Ronald Young Jr. Thanks for listening. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. 
With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus.